On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, So great having you here together this morning as we get to uh, together lift up the name of Jesus. What a wonderful time of worship here in the room. Those of you online, uh, thank you for worshiping with us and, and attending with us online from wherever you're coming from. Well, this week uh, we had that momentous uh, moment where the sun's axis or the earth's axis tilted to where we have the autumnal equinox and officially into fall. And I don't know about you, but yesterday is like, okay, yeah, that's definitely fall. We're, we're here in fall. So it is good. Definitely time for uh, stew and sweaters and pumpkin spice. So here we are. Welcome to the fall. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the uh, latest uh, viral trend on TikTok in the last couple weeks is women asking men about how often they think about the Roman Empire. If you're not aware of that, get up to speed. I'm, I'm helping you out here. Women asking men, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And the responses have been really quite, uh, it's gone viral on this whole thing. And uh, I, I'm not here to give you lessons on TikTok. The reality is this, you cannot think very long or very deeply about the Roman Empire without realizing that Christianity had a, a tremendous impact on that empire. Not only the, the meteoric spread and expansion of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, but the influence and the impact that these followers of Jesus would have on this culture. I mean, let me kind of illustrate this. In roughly the year 33-ish, there was about 120 followers of Jesus in an upper room, many of them uneducated, at least half of them women. They were scared. And yet, with this 120 people, less people than we have sitting in this room, 120 people, Jesus had given them a vision that the whole world, the kingdom, would in, uh, infiltrate into the entire world. At that point, the Roman Empire had roughly 60 to 75 million people. Could you imagine those 120 people scared to death, sitting in an upper room thinking, and we're going to change this world? And yet the Holy Spirit comes, and these 120 people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, given the vision of Jesus, under persecution, being arrested, put to death for their faith, began to see the kingdom of God spread. And over the course of the next 300 years, defying all odds, going against all human logic, the kingdom of God begins to overthrow the Roman Empire to where 300 years later, there was then estimated 34 million followers of Jesus. And eventually, I think it was in 312, the emperor Constantine himself would convert to Christianity. And a few decades later, Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
It's it's mind-boggling. It's baffling. It makes no sense at all that the kingdom of God in these circumstances, in this situation where there was so much opposition, would become such a powerful force in the world. It, It just didn't make sense. Not in the Roman Empire. And that the church would would be able to be planted and and flourish in the most unlikely places. A place like Corinth, the sin city of the day. A place filled with idolatry and immorality and and hedonism and materialism and and, and all this secular mindset and this pluralistic uh, culture that the church of Jesus Christ would actually grow there. But in the year A.D. 50-ish, Paul goes there, apparently not knowing anyone, and begins to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, and the church is planted, and it begins to grow and grow there in Corinth. And over the ensuing years, Paul leaves after a year and a half there, and he writes some letters back to this church in Corinth. There's probably three, maybe four letters that he wrote. Two of them have made their way into the New Testament, referred to as First and Second Corinthians. And this series, Dear Church, that we're looking at this fall, is taking some lessons out of this first letter that we have called First Corinthians. And if you were with us last week, we started this series, and there was a ton of backstory, background, historical, geographical, cultural, uh, biblical. And so for the, some of you who love that wasn't that great? And the rest of you, thank you for hanging in there. Uh, I promise you today, it won't be nearly as intense. There is one individual, I am going to go a little bit deep on his backstory, just so you're aware of that, but, but it won't be like it was last week. And we began to, to look at this, not just so that we could understand about a church in Greece 2,000 years ago, but so that we could understand the messages and the lessons from them to apply to our lives today, in this year, in this season, in our church, in our lives. Now, Paul starts this letter when he says this, writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, he gives uh, the geographical address, the church of God that's in Corinth. This is where you live. This is where you reside. You're in Corinth. But he also gives a spiritual address because you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Yes, you live in Corinth. You live in this culture. But your life and your spiritual life is found in Jesus Christ. You have been sanctified in Christ. And not only that, but he goes on to say, and you've been called to be holy. You've been called to be saints. And what we landed on last week is that we're all saints with the biblical definition. Positionally in Christ, you're a saint. Behaviorally, not yet. But that's why we're working on this, that positionally in Christ, we are saints. And what does it mean for us to live in our Corinth, but to not be of Corinth, to be of Christ? What does it look like for us to look a little less like our culture, a little less like the worldview, a little less like with our values and our thoughts and our, our, our resources and our bodies and all of these things, a little less like Corinth and a little more like Christ. And that was, that was kind of where we left off last week. That the goal is that, that in our lives as saints set apart for God's purposes, that there's this ongoing transformation of being more like Christ and less like Corinth. Well, after the 11 o'clock service, 
I got in my car, didn't even change clothes, got in my car, heading south to go to my mom's house, very excited, we were going to have a family gathering. Uh, my mom and her husband were going to be there, my brother and his wife and several of his uh, boys, um, my nephews were going to be there, my sister and her husband were out from Atlanta. Um, my nephew, one of my nephews has uh, two, three kids, my great nephews and a great niece, two of which I'd never met. So we're going to have this big family and a family meeting. It was going to be great. And I said, don't start anything till I get there. They were all there. I had to drive from here. No problem. I was going to get there as fastly as I could, safely and legally. So heading out of Bellingham, everything's going great. Until I got in Shoreline Northgate area. And then, and I'm thinking, it's a Sunday afternoon, and the Hawks aren't here, and it, and it, it just, the I-5 became a parking lot. And right there after Shoreline, as you're going into Northgate, some of you are aware, there's the express lanes. But the sign said, express lanes closed, left lane, you know, merge right. So you know, you know what I'm talking about there. Now, when it says the express lanes are closed, and the left lane's going to be closed a mile ahead or a half mile ahead, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who recognize, okay, I need to merge over into the mainstream and be like the rest of folks in the cattle car. And then there are these people that take this as the opportunity to go as far and as fast as they can down that open lane and somehow squeak in at the very last minute. Those people are referred to as reprobates, <laughs> scallywags, ne'er-do-goods. And I just want to say, I'm glad you're here. We're very glad you're here. So this was the case. I had merged over like all the godly people. And I was in this lane. And you can see, you can see in your rearview mirror as people are coming in hot down the, you know, down that free lane. And there was one coming. And a car, three cars in front of me kind of did that. I'm going to kind of just get over halfway into that lane, kind of straddle the line. You know what I'm talking about. Just to let them know, slow your roll. Okay, you're, your people are pointing today. All right. <laughs> Kind of that, like, you know, I just need to, I need to be here to help monitor the traffic and all that. And so this was a case, this car had kind of moved half and half, straddling both, just to slow this person down. And the individual coming, I don't know if it was male or female, it does not really even matter, decided that wasn't going to stop their, their progress. And they went over into, like, this little narrow area right on the, where the barriers, I mean, and right around this car. Well, the car that was kind of helping keep things under control laid on their horn rolled down their window, and sent a nonverbal emoji with their hand. It was what I call a, a digital emoji, because it only entailed one of the digits on their left hand. And, and I was sitting there, and I'm like, I would never do that. Honestly, I would never do that. But I'm telling you, there was a part of me that was like, if the digit fits. <laughs> and, and so as I'm thinking about that, I see in my rearview mirror, there's another one coming in hot. And then I realized as I've been thinking through all this, there has been a widened gap between me and the car in front of me. I'm like, oh no, uh, they are not getting in front of me. So as they came up on my side, I stepped on it and we're going mile per mile per hour. And then I have to slam on my brakes so I don't do, but I closed that gap. And with great deal of satisfaction, that car did not get in front of me. And in that moment, I kid you not, there was this gentle nudge from the Holy Spirit. Hey, pastor, did that look more like Corinth or more like Christ? And I'm telling you, in my car, I laughed out loud. He's like, I am so qualified to preach this message. 
because I got a whole lot more of this going on right now than I've got this going on. And that it's this ongoing transformation of us learning to be more like Christ. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We looked, uh, not ex- exhaustively, but we looked at the first nine verses last week. And in those first nine verses, you would think as, as Paul is talking to this church, that, man, this is, must have been like the, the perfect ideal church. And he talks about this glowing picture, this beautiful bride of Christ that has the grace of Jesus Christ. It's been empowered and gifted with the, the Spirit's gifts. It's got this incredible future and sealed for the day of, of Christ. It, it must have been fantastic, this church. This must have been the church that he was most excited about. And yet in his second letter, and I don't want to get confusing here of jumping into that second letter. In the second Corinthians, he's writing them and he expresses some of the hardships that he's going through. And there's a reason for that. But at the end of that list, he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, if you read just those first nine verses, you would think, oh, well, he's talking to these people because they're like partners in ministry with him. He's talking about the church in Philippi. He's talking about the church in Ephesus. He's talking about the churches in Galatia. He's talking about all those other churches. But the reality is he's talking about Corinth. And the concern that he carries for them, he had planted this church. He he had been their pastor. He had poured into them. He had invested in their lives. He prayed for them. He taught them. He preached. A year and a half he spent with them. He's taking the time even to write these letters because he carries this pressure, this concern for this body of believers. But they're dear to him. This familial affection and love and connection that he has. Well, you would think, according to the first nine verses, he would say, hey, I commend you. You guys are doing great. But look what he says in verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. Now, some of your translations might say, I exhort you, or I plead with you, or I implore you. This isn't like, hey, I, I, I commend you. He says, I, I appeal to you, I exhort you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, he could have appealed to them in a lot of ways. He could have said, I appeal to you as your pastor. Listen to me, please. Or he could have said, you know, what, what do we have in common? I appeal to you as a Roman citizen. We're all Roman citizens here for the sake of the, of the empire. He could have said, I appeal to you as as Corinthians or as Greeks or even as members of the church. But he says, no, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He appeals to them at the highest common denominator. He doesn't look for the lowest common denominator. He says, what is it that we all have in common? Let me tell you the highest thing that we have in common, and that is Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last week, and we see it again here. Ten times in the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians, he references Jesus. Every single verse. He's a one-track, he's a stuck record. He's got a one-track message here. It's all about Christ. Your grace was in Christ. Your, your sanctification is in Christ. Your gifts are in Christ. All this. He keeps pointing them to Christ because he wants them to remember that who they are, what they have, where they're going, it's all about because of one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of their identity in Christ. So he appeals to them at the highest common denominator. He says, this, 
This we all have in common, and it's the greatest thing. So what does he appeal to them with? This is what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, this is, this is not just, hey, you guys, you're doing great. Just keep getting along because we're all going to do this together. No, he says, I don't want there to be any division among you. I want you to be perfectly united in your mind and in your thoughts. And what we'll see here in a minute is that it's not just generally, hey, you guys, everybody, you know, let's all get along. He's addressing a very specific issue. Issues, but today we'll look at one specific issue. Now, one little side note I want to point out is that when he appeals to them here, that, that he, uh, he pleads with them for unity, not uniformity. There's a difference here. Because in the midst of their, their, all of their differences, because they were a very diverse congregation, it was a beautiful thing. Because there were Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens. There were Jews um, well, last week we looked at Crispus, who was, had been the leader of the synagogue. And then there was Titius Justus, who was a, a Roman citizen, probably a Greek. So you had Jews and Greeks and Romans and citizens. You had slaves and freedmen. You had wealthy people and not as wealthy people. You had educated and not men and women. Very diverse. So he's not saying, I want everybody to be exactly the same. In fact, in chapter 12, and we may get to this at the end of October, early November, in chapter 12, he uses this picture of the church being like a body, a physical body. That's the metaphor that he uses. And he says, not everybody is a hand. And if everyone was a hand, then where would the foot be? And not everyone is an eye. If you had eye, where would the hearing be? If everyone was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? He says, just like there's many different parts in a body, but there's one body. And then he would go on to talk about the spiritual gifts. We don't all have the same spiritual gifts. Not everybody has this gift. Not everybody has this gift. So he's not talking about uniformity. I want everyone to be exactly the same. What he's saying is I want in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our diversity, I want there to be unity. I want there to be unity so there's not division, a unity of mind and thought. Why? Because we have the highest common denominator, and that's Jesus Christ. Now in this, he kind of explains why he's even, even writing these things. Verse 11, he says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now think about this. This wasn't just a couple of people bickering over the music's too loud or the sermons are too long or any of those things that we find quarrels in churches about. There's something serious going on here, big enough that some from Chloe's household, whoever Chloe is, some of her employees or servants or family members are reporting this into Paul. Paul at this point is in Ephesus. That's 180 miles away across the Aegean Sea. So it's not just like, hey, Paul, can you come figure this one out? They're like, this is important enough that we need to let Paul know about this. And it's also big enough and important enough that Paul would address it, not just saying, oh, you know, it'll work itself out. He addresses it, he confronts it head on in a letter that would be read for thousands of years. And it's not that, it's not that there was just one quarrel or one division. As we will see throughout this letter, there was a lot of division, a lot of disagreement, a lot of quarreling. There were some that had come out of a, out of a Jewish background and some that were not Jewish. 
And there was quarreling and disagreement about what they could and couldn't eat, their dietary laws, because the Levitical laws were very strict, but those who were Greeks and Romans, they didn't have that. And so how, or do they have to, so there was a quarrel there. There were some quarrels between some who were within the body, taking each other to court and having lawsuits against one another. There were quarrels about the gifts. Who has which gifts? Which gifts are more important? These kind of this, this hierarchy of, of gifts, and there was a disagreement there. There were quarrels in their relationships. In marriage, there was quarrels about how communion was taken. There was quarrels about what would happen in church and in their services together and who could do what and what was going on. A lot of different quarrels going on, but he just focuses on one here at the beginning. And it's a quarrel about leadership. He says, okay, for instance, let me just start with this one. Verse 12. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says... I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, what we don't know is if this was just kind of a, the individual mindset that people had, or worse, if there were actual factions and groups within the church. This group over here says, hey, we follow Paul, and and because of that, we're not going to associate with you. And Well, we follow Apollos, and, and because of that, you know, you're, you're not a part of us. Or we follow Cephas. We, we, we're with Peter. You know, we're with Christ. All these things. There's, there may have been these groups that the church was beginning to divide, and it would be very destructive. This is where I want to take just a moment and give some backstory about these four names that are listed here. Paul, we know. We spent a lot of time on this last week. Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth, roughly the year 50. He plants a church, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, this couple that he's in business with. They become partners in ministry. He goes into the synagogue. The Jews don't really want to have anything to do with his message except for Christmas. He goes over to Titus Justice's Justice house. We looked at all this last week. God speaks to him and has him stay for a year and a half there, which was very unusual for Paul, that he would stay that long a year and a half, and while he continued to preach, it says that many of the Corinthians heard the message and they believed and they were baptized. So Paul, he's, he's founded this church. He planted this church. He led this church. He pastored this church. Many of them, they came to know Christ through his ministry. And some would say, we follow him. He's our founding pastor. Others would say, I follow Apollos. This is where I want to give you just a little backstory because you're like, well, who's this Apollos? I mean, you remember Apollo Creed, but that was from the Rocky movies. This is totally different. Who's Apollos? Because he is a very big player in this Corinthian church in the early years. Again, we go back to Acts chapter 18. Paul, after a year and a half, he and Aquila and Priscilla, they leave. They go up to Ephesus and Paul heads on. Chapter 18, verse 24 of Acts, it says this. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. So he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is the Roman capital of the region or the, um, the, the district of Egypt. So it's in Egypt. He's from 200 miles south across the Mediterranean Sea. He's from Alexandria. 
What you need to know about Alexandria, some of you know this from your history, Alexandria, one of the things it was known for was that it was an, it was an intellectual haven, and they had this, one of the biggest and one of the most significant libraries in all of antiquity, over 500,000 scrolls in this library. It was very well known for the, 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 the literature and the wisdom and all this uh, knowledge that they had in Alexandria. At the same time, there was a man named Philo or Philo, depending on how you pronounce that. He was a Jewish philosopher and a preacher, and he lived in Alexandria as well. So most likely, highly likely, most probable, is that uh, Apollos was at least minimally influenced by Philo, probably had access to the library, and maybe had actually been mentored under this philosopher-preacher. And he comes to Ephesus now, and this is what it says in verse 24. He, Apollos, he was a learned man. He was educated. This put him in a different category than many of the followers. Many of them were uneducated. Many of them were laborers. But he comes in with an education. He's a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, probably by Philo. And he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. So here's this guy, comes in from Egypt, comes into Ephesus, and he's got knowledge, he's got wisdom, he's got insight, he's got, he's got education, and he knows the scripture really well, and he knows about Jesus, and he speaks with fervor. Like when he talks, there's a, there's a passion in him. There's an intensity, there's a fire. It's very compelling. He, he's probably a very, a very uh, charismatic speaker. And he comes into Ephesus and he's saying this and he goes into the synagogue in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. As Priscilla and Aquila, who are partners with Paul, followers of Jesus, they hear this guy and the boldness that he has in the synagogue. And they're like, wow, this guy's got it going on. But there's some pieces missing in his theology. He's heard of John the Baptist, but apparently had not heard of the Holy Spirit. So there's a big part of the story that, that he's missing. And so they bring him in and they kind of help disciple him and bring him along in this. Well, as he's continuing to grow and he's very effective, he decides he wants to go to Corinth. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's where Corinth was the capital of that region, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so now you get the picture of this guy, Apollos. It's quite impressive. I mean, his education, his knowledge, his mind, his, his grasp of the scriptures, his understanding of Christ, his boldness to speak out, it didn't matter who it was, his, his, his compelling presentation. And not only that, when he gets to Corinth, he begins to refute the Jews in public debate and proves out of scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. If you were here last week, you remember Paul went into the synagogue and was not well received. It implies that Apollos comes and maybe it's because they had started to see what the Christians were doing, or maybe it was his approach. But when Apollos speaks, with his background, with his wisdom, with his philosophy, with his scripture, with his boldness, with, with his presentation, it kind of sounds like 
even the Jews began to be followers after Jesus. So now you can kind of understand why some in Corinth would say, I follow Apollos. I mean, Paul was okay. Don't get me wrong. But, and we'll get to this next week. In chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquent speech or great wisdom. Verse 2, he says, I decided when I would preach to you that I would know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So you begin to see Paul's approach was not to wow them with his wisdom. It was not to, to engage them with his presentation. It was to bring the simple truth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he was crucified. So then Apollos comes in, and he's a rock star. They're like, wow, he's just wowing them. So you begin to understand now why someone say, no, we're loyal to Paul. He was our father. He's the, he planted this church. We're followers of Jesus because and they're like, yeah, 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 fine. But what about Apollos? Now, I probably don't have time for this, but I think humanly there might have been one other little thing that could have caused people to follow Apollos and not Paul. Let, let me just run with this. This one's not biblical, really. <laughs> so Paul writes in um, 2 Corinthians 10, 10, he said about him, people say about me, my letters, I'm pretty impressive, but in person, I'm not very impressive. Okay, that's what he says about, that people are saying about him. There's an apocryphal letter, not biblical, it's from the second century. It's a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And in this writing, there's a story that is relayed that Paul is coming into Iconium. Um, and there's a man named uh, Onesiphorus who's going to meet Paul, but he doesn't know who Paul, I mean, he knows who Paul is, but he's never met him before, never seen him. So Titus tells Onesiphorus, this is the man you're looking for. And this is recorded in this Acts of Paul and Thecla. This is how Titus says, look for a man who is, this is what he writes, who is small in stature, bald-headed, bow-legged, in a good state of body, hollow eyes with eyebrows that meet, rather long, crooked nose, and full of friendliness. <laughs> Not just another pretty face in the crowd. This short, bald, bow-legged, sunken-eyed, unibrow guy with a big nose. In fact, this is what I think he probably looked like. Kind of this Danny DeVito type. And so they're just physically, he's not impressive. He's a little off-putting. But then Apollos comes and he's from Egypt. And maybe he looks like that. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Okay. Now take that away because we're going to lose everybody here. All right. Maybe just maybe there was, yes, this preaching style, but maybe there was more to it than that. But people are saying, hey, I'm with Paul. And others are saying, I'm following Apollos. And he says, in this division that's happening here, it's, it's destructive to the church. And, and others would say, well, I'm following Cephas. That's Peter. We have no proof that Peter ever went to Corinth, but they had probably heard about him, especially the Jewish followers of Jesus, that Peter was one of the original 12. Paul wasn't. That will come up later. Peter was one of the original 12. Peter was the one who, who, who walked on water. Peter was the one who Jesus said, on this, you're rock, you're Peter, you're Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter was the guy. Some are following Peter. And then some say, and I follow Christ, and you would think, well, that was, that was the good group, right? Maybe, unless there was an air of spiritual superiority, of pride and arrogance that looked down on everybody else because we follow Christ 
And we're that group. Well, regardless of what the deal was, there was all of this division, and Paul recognizes that this is going to destroy the church. And what's interesting is this, that in the divisions and the quarrels, they're just symptoms of a greater issue. There's something deeper underneath it. Gordon Fee in his commentary, which very uh, voluminous uh, commentary, just a large commentary, a lot, very deep commentary. But he says at this point, Paul isn't really addressing these different leaders. He goes beneath that, and he says there's something underneath that that caused that. And if we don't get this figured out, nothing else I write in the letter is going to matter. Everything has to be built on this foundation. It's this gospel. It's this truth that he points to. And so Gordon Fee says, at this point, Paul shifts his focus away from Apollos and Paul and, and, and uh, Cephas and, and, and Christ. He shifts the focus onto the real issue. And then he asks three rhetorical questions in verse 13. Three rhetorical questions. He's not looking for an answer. Everyone knows what the answer. Here are the questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now remember, he's going for the highest common denominator, and that's Jesus. He says, we all have Jesus. We've all been sanctified into Christ. We've all been gifted in Christ. It's all in Christ. Is Christ divided? Does he say, well, I'll give a portion of me to this group and a portion of me to this group? And a portion? Is he divided? Or does he say, well, you know what? I'm with this group, but not those. Is that? Of course not. And then Paul goes one step further, and he uses himself as an example. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Like, you're putting these leaders up on a pedestal. This is what I love about Paul. It would have been very flattering for people to say, well, we follow Paul. Yeah, I kind of like that. Kind of boost the ego. They, they think I'm the guy. They've put me on a pedestal. He said, listen, I don't belong in this pedestal. Did I hang on a cross for you? Why would you put me on the pedestal? I didn't die for you. I didn't bleed for you. I can't in any way make atonement for your sin. I, I can't in my power forgive you. I can't secure your place in heaven. I can't, I can't make you have a right relationship and right standing with the Father. Only Jesus could do that. And he infers here, and Apollos didn't do it either, and neither did Cephas. And he says, in baptism, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Man, I hope not. Jesus made it clear, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Paul, in the name of Apollos, in the name of Cephas. Absolutely not. You're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not one of your leaders. So quit putting your leaders, including me, on a pedestal. What he makes so clear on this one is that the only one, and this is the very, this very same thing for us today, the only one that ever should be ever put on a pedestal is the one who hung on the cross. That's the only one. Not Pastor Grant. Not Pastor Bob. Not Pastor anything. Only Jesus Christ is put on the pedestal. because. So he says, there's no one else but Christ. 
yet there have been these leaders and, and God has used them. But it's not about human leaders. I mean, and, and there's no indication that there's any kind of tension between Paul and Apollos and Cephas at this point. This is what people have done. In fact, later in chapter three, he'll talk about how we worked, I planted and Apollos watered and all that, that they worked together on this. He said, we are just messengers pointing to Jesus. And, and yes, God used Paul to plant the church. And yes, God used Apollos in a different way to reach other people there at the church. And God used Peter, he was the rock, all of that granted. But it was Jesus who said, I will build my church. It would be his church, not Peter's church, not Apollos' church, not Paul's church. It would be his church, and he would be the one that would build it. He would be the one that would cast the vision for this kingdom that would change the world. His blood is the one that would redeem it. His spirit is the one that would empower it. It was him and his very presence found in the body, in the church, in the world today. And this kingdom would not only overtake the entire Roman Empire, but it would go throughout the uttermost parts of the world so that even 2,000 years later, long after every leader has come and gone, Jesus and his church continues to go forward because he said, I will build my church. And I'm going to use people like Paul and Apollos and Peter, but I'm going to build my, it's my church. And so there's no one else but Jesus because of what he has done and that his church would impact the world, would bring hope, would bring healing, would bring forgiveness, would bring joy, would bring redemption, would bring the kingdom of God. And no one else but Jesus. And if you're with Jesus, you very quickly recognize there's no thing else but the cross. Now for us, cross, I mean, cross is a common thing. We have one here on the platform. We have one out in the front of our building. Some of you are wearing them around your necks. Some of you have them on our bracelet. Crosses are this religious adornment for us. It kind of symbolizes Christianity for us. Boy, not for them. For them, the cross was a, it was an instrument of death. It was a torture device. It was a, a picture of accursed cruelty. And Paul would say, and you read this in, in the, the ensuing verses, we don't have time to, to go to these, but he would say, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he would go on to say, the Jews demand miraculous signs. That's what they're always saying to Jesus. If you're the Messiah, show us this. What kind of sign are you going to prove? The Jews demand miraculous signs. And the Greeks, the Greeks, they look for wisdom. In verse 23, he says, but, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ, Messiah, crucified, that whole concept for us, that's every spring. We do that at Easter. Of course, we sing about that. Not for them, not the Jewish people. The Messiah, the Messiah is not to be crucified. The Messiah is supposed to come and set up the kingdom and overthrow Rome and set things right and bring his kingdom to bear and bring back the glory days of King David a thousand years earlier. This is what the Messiah would be about. 
The Messiah would come with splendor, with triumph, with power. The Messiah is not crucified. This is why it was a stumbling block for the Jews. They, they couldn't fathom this. The splendor of the Messiah on the humiliation of the cross. The triumph of the Messiah in the defeat of death on a cross. The power of the Messiah displayed in the weakness of the cross. And on top of that, Deuteronomy 21, 23 made it very clear that anyone who hangs on the cross is cursed from God. How could his Messiah be cursed from God? It's a stumbling block for them. And it was foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Think about the Greek mindset with their gods, Zeus and Apollo and Poseidon and Isis and Athena and all these gods that battle it out. And the one that wins and the victorious, powerful one is the one that's supreme. And, and mere mortals are just, they're just pawns. They're just fodder. And they're talking about Jesus being their God who not only lost to an enemy, but his enemy was mere mortals. Now, wait a second. You're saying that human beings killed your God? That would be laughable to them. The Greeks are saying, this, there's no, this is foolishness. And the beauty is this, is that the weakness of the cross was God's greatest demonstration of power. And the foolishness of the cross was God's greatest expression of wisdom. In verse 25, Paul would write, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. He over, outsmarted and overpowered all of human wisdom. So Paul starts off with this. He says, if we don't get this one right, nothing else matters. It's the who and the what. The who is Christ, the what is his cross. Christ and him crucified. Now, let's bring this to us. Because if we focus on anything else, any other message other than Christ and him crucified, we miss it. So our focus around here is that we would find and follow Jesus. But when we follow Jesus, we follow the way of Jesus. And when you follow the way of Jesus, it's also the way of the cross. Jesus said if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, daily take up his cross, and follow me. Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Like it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And until we get focused on what Jesus has done for us on the cross, his power displayed in weakness, his wisdom displayed in foolishness, until we get focused on that and then begin to follow him in the way of the cross, we will never ever be transformed for our life, putting ourselves on a pedestal to willingly becoming a living sacrifice that Ron just talked about 40 minutes ago. It's when we begin to follow Christ that way that when we have to lay down our rights and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't seem fair and it seems like foolishness in the world's eyes, we say, yes, but... I'm looking a little more like Jesus and a little less like Corinth. When there's an injustice where I have to turn the other cheek, where I have to be the bigger one, where I have to forgive when 
when I, it's not fair, it's not right. But I'm following the way of Jesus and the way of the cross. When it's inconvenient to follow Jesus, because there will come a point where it is inconvenient to follow Jesus. Morally, materially, relationally, there will be inconvenience. But at that point to say, I'm following Jesus in the way of the cross. And that becomes the foundation for all of it. I'll end with this. Hebrews 12 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, and it's the way to the life you were created to live. That is why this small group of followers of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gripped with this reality, could change the world. And God is still using his people to change the world.